4: On this episode of Newt's World, I am really pleased to talk with Shannon Bream, anchor of Fox News Sunday and Fox News Channel's chief legal correspondent and a good friend. She's got a brand new book out entitled The Love Stories of the Bible Speak Biblical Lessons on Romance, Friendship, and Faith. And this is the third book in a series she's created, which began with the number one New York Times bestsellers, The Women of the Bible Speak and the mothers and daughters of the Bible speak. And I think she's doing a lot to really open up the Bible in a practical human way for millions of people. In her latest book, she draws lessons from the good, the bad, and the ugly of biblical romances, friendships, and families. She shows how God's love is often very different from ours, turning upside down our assumptions about life, relationships, and each other. Here to talk about her new book, I'm really pleased to welcome back my guest, Shannon Bream. Shannon, welcome, and thank you for joining me again on Newt's World.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It is an honor to be with you.
4: You know, we last spoke last March about the mothers and the daughters of the Bible speak, and you're now getting in this pattern of releasing one book every year, and they are all bestsellers, and I have to say I'm a little bit jealous. (laughs) go quite a track record yourself. <laughs> well, I had occasional. But the Women of the Bible Speak, The Wisdom of 16 Women and Their Lessons for Today, March of 2021. The Mothers and Daughters of the Bible Speak, Lessons on Faith from Nine Biblical Families, March 2022. And I'm curious, how do you manage the process of writing, along with preparing to be on Fox News every Sunday and continuing to be Fox News Channel's chief legal correspondent?
2: Well, Mr. Speaker, you do this too. You manage all kinds of things. And you know, when you're writing, you're sort of in the zone. So when I'm really hardcore trying to hit a deadline for the book, there's not a lot of doing anything else. I mean, it's either work or book. And that means not socializing, not hanging out, not going on on trips or anything else. You're just sort of in the zone. So I find that I really compartmentalize things so that Each thing gets done in its timing, and then you're off to the races on the next thing. So I like to be busy, and I like to work. I'm actually working on trying to find better balance for that, but I love the work I get to do. It feels like a blessing.
4: You said something, I think, very important for somebody who wants to become a writer. How do you get into the zone? I know the feeling. I've published something like 45 books over the years, and there is something that happens when you're really able to focus, and it's just kind of flowing correctly. I mean, how do you experience that? What's your sense of that?
2: You know, I know I have to have a few hours that are just quiet and set aside knowing I'm not going to be distracted by anything else I have to do. I know this is going to sound weird, but I play Christmas music for whatever reason that Christmas music works for me when I'm writing and it's just instrumental. I don't want any words. So I just listen to instrumental Christmas music for a few hours, turn everything else off and I just have my stacks of research books. And I watch a lot of sermons. I'll watch rabbis, Catholic priests, Protestant pastors, just to get different viewpoints on these Bible stories that I've known my whole life, but just to learn a lot more from different angles. And so between the Christmas music and the research and the silence of everything else, hopefully in a few hours, I can get a lot done.
4: So it doesn't matter what time of year it is, it's Christmas music?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter. And the funny thing is, I did write part of this book. We were finishing up around Thanksgiving time, which I'd already started to unpack some of the Christmas stuff. So the Christmas music fit there.
4: That's great. I love this image of you surrounded by Christmas, no matter what time of the year it is. And it kind of fits. You You always seem like you're just one day away from opening presents. You have this permanently positive attitude towards life that I think really serves you very, very well.
2: Well, thank you. And we come from the same place. I mean, faith to me is the redemption of the rest of the world and the things that we have to confront on a daily basis. It's very overwhelming. But I feel like when you've got a perspective, like we know how the story ends and good does triumph over evil, that there is hope in the world, that hopefully we share it with other people.
4: The Bible is an extraordinary book of not just enormous importance, but it's enormously complex and has an amazing range of stories. And you have found sort of a way of finding a thread, if I might say, And you follow that thread through the Bible. And this most recent one, the love stories of the Bible speak. What led you to that?
2: Some of these we had touched on in the earlier books. And I'm like, okay, let's let the guys in on the action here. Because they're critical parts of these stories. For example, with Mary and Joseph, I thought she rightfully gets so much of the attention as being the mother of the Messiah and taking on this divine assignment. But also Joseph had to make some really difficult decisions and very much was a perfect model of sacrificial love, of protecting Mary and Jesus. And then the family they built with these other children, a provider. Joseph, I kind of joke, was like the world's best stepdad ever because he was called into this assignment and never backed away from it. So I thought, let's look at some of the men in these stories too and see how relationships went well in the case of Mary and Joseph and some they didn't, like Samson and Delilah.
4: So you go through the Bible, which you obviously know extraordinarily well, and you pick... Selected examples that really relate, I think, to every human being. I mean, all of us have some need to have friends, to have lovers, to have people we share our lives with. And all of us experience this thing of this human emotion. And you managed to make the Bible come alive as an everyday document that relates to us. As you went through it, how did you pick out the specific stories you decided to use?
2: Well, you're right. Listen, these stories are already there. They're beautiful stories. And maybe somebody who's intimidated by the Bible or wouldn't pick it up. I want to put it in a format that maybe they read these stories and then for themselves, they say, oh, wow, I didn't even realize that person or that story was in the Bible. And then maybe they want to go study more for themselves and they're drawn to it. So I hope it's an open door for them. But these love stories, I think there's some we think of right away, like maybe Mary, Joseph, Adam and Eve, Song of Solomon, a very tricky one, but I felt like if we're going to do love service of the Bible, we have to dig into that very racy sort of love collection of poems. But Ruth and Boaz, I felt like there are stories that relate to everything, whether it's widowhood or being in a tough marriage or the ideal marriage and what God had ideally set up with Adam and Eve. So I feel like there's a lot to learn there. And like I always do in these books, I include the bad ones. Like we say, Samson and Delilah, because I think that there are lessons in where people get off track, because we all do that. And God can work through our mistakes, our messes. And I find that to be a really comforting message.
4: Well, in a sense, I noticed that the way you did this, you have 12 different relationships, but they sort of break on the one hand into romantic relationships, and on the other hand, into friendships, which are also an expression of love.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, we saw real relationships and friendships with Jesus. Think about all the disciples, the people that you know best in your life or the people that you travel with and you do life with. And these guys were in really trying circumstances, very dangerous circumstances sometimes. So you really see how their friendships grow. I spend one chapter on Jesus and John, the apostle that he loved. And talk about how we see their relationship mature and it's a real friendship and in the old testament one of my favorites is shadrach meshach and abednego these friends who refused to back down when they were forced to either choose to worship a false god which would have offended where they were in their allegiance to the god of israel or be thrown into a fiery furnace so we talk about having friends that walk through the fire together with us those men actually did that literally in the Bible. And I just think it's such a network and a glue to our lives, these friendship relationships. And so I think they're just as important as looking at the romantic relationships do.
4: I think one of the most interesting stories you picked was Job and his friends, because normally we think of Job in an isolated, being punished by God, really living through a terrible set of experiences. Frankly, until your book, I'd never thought about Job and his friends. Could you talk just a little bit about that? In some ways, it's one of the most interesting stories you tell.
2: Yeah, I thought about this because, you know, in the beginning, we find that Job is this really righteous man and that Satan basically goes to God and says, oh, I could make him turn on you. And God allows the suffering into Job's life because he's confident that Job is a pure of heart and is not going to turn away from God. So everything is unleashed on him. He loses all of his children at once. He loses the thing that the world would say make you successful, his livestock and his riches. All of that goes away. And then his very own health is attacked. And so he's under every pressure and nightmare that we all would imagine you could go through. So his friends, the three of them decide to get together and say, we're going to go to him and comfort him. As they're approaching him, they see how physically and emotionally completely devastated he is. They fall down weeping and mourning and realizing the pain they're walking into. And we're told when they get there, they sit there for seven days in silence. I mean, sometimes that's the friend that we need and the friend that we need to be is that we worry sometimes when people are in deep grief or struggles in their lives that we're going to say the wrong thing. So we don't show up. We don't pick up the phone. These guys just went and sat there. And that gift of their presence was a beautiful thing. Everyone's so overwhelmed by grief. They couldn't even speak, but they were there. So it's when they start to have their conversations with Job and try to figure out if he's done something wrong and they really pick into his life. Have you sinned? Is there something you've done wrong? God knows the whole story at the end, comes around and says to these friends, like, listen, you've spoken some truth into him, but you've been wrong about his righteousness. And God is with him in that suffering. But you see that friends, sometimes the most important thing we can do is just show up, even if we're not going to get things exactly right. Just showing up in the worst moments is important.
0: LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
4: When you're going through this and you're looking at these things, was there anything where you suddenly stopped and said, boy, I've never thought of that? Something which surprised you?
2: One of the stories that's kind of obscure that's in the book is about David and Abigail. And I remembered this story vaguely, but that's a thing. You can read the Bible cover to cover and still have so much to learn. I always have so much to learn. But so David and Abigail, it's a situation where she's married to a guy who the Bible says is basically a jerk. He's a horrible husband. The people in his household don't respect him. But his wife is respectful. I mean, she does what she can to keep their household going. And when they're under terrible threat at some point, she goes and she's the peacemaker. She gives this eloquent speech to David who is going to come attack their household because of the disrespect her husband has shown to David. And she makes things right. She is a wise woman. Listen, the guy ends up getting struck down because God was so mad at her husband in the way that he rejected David and was just an all around terrible guy. And David remembers her. He remembers the peacemaker, the respectful woman that she was in coming to make the case. And so he goes back after she's widowed and says, hey, how about come be my wife? Because he had seen how she operated with such grace under pressure and was so impressed by this woman. And so there was a lot in that story that I thought, you know, even if you're in a difficult marriage, sometimes just your ability to be a peacemaker or to find the best or to even be the person who runs interference to try to protect your spouse, sometimes that's going to be your role. And she was this woman that the wording that the Bible uses in the original language, talking about her intelligence, is really a rare thing. And it shows that she was a strong woman. She kind of broke the norms of the day. And in doing that, she saved her entire household, except for her husband, who was an evil guy that got taken out.
4: In that context, as you're reading all these various stories, from romantic love stories to friendship stories, did any of them remind you of your own life, your own experiences, your own relationships? Yeah.
2: You know, what's funny. So I go through Song of Solomon, which is very flowery and very racy. But you see these two people who are very much in love and are trying to get to each other in marriage. And they love each other as you do in the beginning of a relationship. And there's always that passion, I think, that is a good thing. It's not like God's surprise. Like he invented us in all of this. So he obviously ordains that. So you see that beginning of their relationship. And it made me think about the beginning of my marriage where I was like, so excited, like, let's get married. Let's get on with life and you don't know all the tough things that are gonna come at you. And I'm so thankful for 27 years now with my husband, and I'm thinking I really need to up my game on my love notes because these notes are like, his arms are bands of gold and her teeth are like the whitest goats of the flock. I mean, it's very flowery and funny to us now in modern times, but I think, okay, you know, you gotta remember what your relationship was like in the beginning and nurture and feed that. And try to say, gosh, I remember those days, and I still love you in an even deeper way now. But maybe I could do better than just like, have a great day, XO. I'm going to work on my love notes, Snoot.
4: That's great. I have to say, picking Solomon as your standard, that's a pretty steep mountain. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You also have some interesting things that I think people almost never think about. You look at Samson and Delilah, which is certainly a relationship that didn't work out very well, but you actually start with, the relationship between Samson's parents. How did you get to that and what did you draw from it?
2: Yeah, it's a quiet kind of relationship. We do get to the Samson and Delilah are the superstars, the headliners of that story. But to go back, you see this beautiful partnership between his parents where she wasn't able to have a child. She's then visited by an angel of the Lord that many people believe was Christ before he came to earth and talks to her and says, you're going to have this child. She runs to her husband instead of him saying, oh, foolish woman, are you hallucinating? Whatever, like he immediately believes her and knows that she is a woman to be believed. And so he shows great respect to her her husband they pray like lord we want to get this right could you come back and tell us more so the angel comes back to her again and she's like wait a minute let me go get my husband so we see this beautiful marriage and partnership where these two knew that they were having a baby that was blessed in a special delivery by god and they wanted to get it right they wanted to make sure they raised him the right way in a way that would honor god so you have this beautiful marriage at the beginning that samson didn't model that later in his life and you wonder if he was always looking in these bad relationships that he had to get to this beautiful thing that his parents had, but they definitely set an example that's one of the quiet ones in the Bible, but very beautiful.
4: It always struck me that Samson is this very sincere person. He's, in a sense, a patriot in the context of his world. And he really is in love with Delilah and trusts her totally. And she's almost a model of somebody who is totally untrustworthy. I mean, who has a false face, but in fact has set out to destroy Samson.
2: Mm -hmm. And it's funny that we see that he loves her. But like you said, she's always doing some kind of other double dealing because she's bribed by these men who are threatened by Samson and what a great warrior and defender he is of the Hebrew people. And so they constantly go to her and say, out what the strength is the secret is to his strength and he tells her the wrong thing multiple times and these men rush in they try whatever it is tied me with certain cords he breaks them off he clearly has all his strength and goes after them and defeats them so you gotta wonder why after time after time that delilah is clearly betraying him he finally gives in and says this final part of my vow is that if my hair is cut that breaks my vow with god and i'll lose my strength But he was so worn down by this woman and so weak when it came to the demands of women in his life that he goes along with this. He gets captured. You said, you know, he gets his eyes gouged out. The Philistines are making a mockery of him because he had wiped them out so many times. They have him chained up to the pillars of this temple where they're celebrating. And I do think it's so beautiful, as you pointed out, in the end, he goes back to God after all these messes he's made and said, God, just see me, give me strength one more time so I can take down this temple and take out everybody with me. He knows he's going to be giving up his own life. And God is faithful. He hears that humble cry and he shows up and gives Samson that strength. And Samson has this great defeat in laying down his own life and taking out thousands of the Philistines who were oppressing his people.
4: It's a remarkable story, also a story of sacrifice of a man who in the end was willing to sacrifice himself to free his people. Now, you touch on something which I have recently been actually thinking about, and that is Adam and Eve, and the whole degree to which it all begins there, both in the sense of the original sin, but also in the sense of the relationships, and man is lonely, so God takes a rib and creates Eve, and they have a real relationship, and without that, all the rest of the Bible doesn't occur. Right. I don't think it's often told as a love story, but in fact, of course— it's the first marriage, it's the first real relationship, it's the first husband and wife. When you were thinking about it and putting the context of your book, did that kind of get to you a little bit? This was a miraculous moment.
2: Absolutely, because think about the creation stories that were told each time a day wrapped up, say God created the heavens and the earth or the plants or the animals, every time it would end with, and it was good, or he saw that it was good. But it wasn't until Adam was standing there alone with no partner in this whole thing It was the first time that we see in the Bible that God says, like, it wasn't good. He knew something was missing for Adam and there was nothing that had been created that would be a sufficient partner for him. And so he does take this rib and creates Eve. And the thing that I love that's so beautiful, if you really look at the scripture and look at the original wording, the word for Eve was this easer idea. Like, it's not that she was some subservient sidekick. She was a partner with him in this, a helper, a rescuer. And they had this role together that was a beautiful thing starting out in the Garden of Eden before it went tragically wrong. But she's also creating God's image. They are equals. There's nothing lesser about her. So I think any interpretation of Adam and Eve different than that is missing the point that God created them to go together through life and they go through really tragic things and they cling to each other and build the world and the family as we now know it.
4: Even in the story of the apple, I mean he listens to her. She clearly has substantial influence. This is not a passive subordinate. This is a partner. There's a clarity here to the emergence of man and woman, the emergence of marriage, the emergence of children. I mean, all of these things are at the core of who we are as human beings.
2: And it's a beautiful thing. And listen, we as human beings have done all kinds of things. I talk about Solomon in this book. I talk about David. And they were men who were viewed as after God's own heart. But they had their own mistakes with marriages and concubines and relationships and all kinds of things that I think they got away from this ideal of what we saw in the garden there with Adam and Eve, which is such a beautiful, simple, but powerful thing. So I think human beings, we reinterpret things and go off on our own paths that may not be what was the original of what God intended.
3: Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to "Playing Dirty: Sports Scandals" on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: You also talk about, and I think it's a fascinating point, that Jesus had a uniquely close relationship with the Apostle John, and that. John was very close to Jesus in life and death and his resurrection. That was probably an enormously important part of Jesus' own strength was having someone he was that close to. In a sense I think it makes Jesus more human in our understanding of him, the degree to which this was God becoming man, not remaining God, so that he needed him. Talk for a minute just about John. I mean John turns out to be one of the most significant figures in that sense in the entire Bible story.
2: Yeah. And he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. And we do see a very real friendship as these two journey through life together. And in the beginning, John's described as he and his brother, the sons of thunder, because they had a lot of righteous anger about people not doing things the right way or not going with the way that God had outlined or Christ had outlined things. And they really wanted to rain down on them. But you can see Christ speaking to John's life like, that's not the right response here. That's not what we're going to do. You see John mature, And he's there at the cross at the very end with Jesus' mother, Mary. And we see Christ say to him, like, basically, she's your mother now. You take care of her now. We see just how close that they were. And so John obviously goes on to his own trials and ends up giving us the book of Revelation, which ends the Bible. And so they had a very special relationship, but we can see how it matured over time. And of course, Jesus, as you said, he walked here as fully God, fully human, and had human relationships. And I think we can learn through those and these friendships.
4: Of all the disciples, John is the one who stays. The rest all get shaken. Even Peter, who ultimately founds the modern church, breaks out of fear. And as Christ had warned him, betrays Christ, something which he thought he'd never do until the fear took over. And he, I suspect, never quite recovered from the guilt he felt at having betrayed God.
2: Yeah, I think you're probably right about that, because all of us want to deny, as Peter did, that we would ever do it. And as you said, at that moment where his pretty much it was a life or death situation, once Jesus had been taken in, and that sham trial with the beating and the torture and all the things that happened to him leading up to the crucifixion, We're all human, and Peter was, and to feel that fear is a very real thing, but John was one, and maybe it was part of that Sons of Thunder, that real boldness that he had about him, this real fire and passion about believing exactly who Jesus was, that he did stick around to the very, very bitter end and
4: beyond. There's no indication in any of the books of Jesus feeling badly about the people abandoning him because he knew they would. He knew that they were human, and that in the end that they would be frightened, and he accepts them. And when he does come back from the tomb, he accepts them. There's no recriminations. There's no, why did you abandon me? And it's almost as though God's love is endless and constant and truly unconditional. And you talk about the unconditionality that God loves us. We may sometimes doubt him, but he never doubts us.
2: Exactly. And I think for us as human beings, because what we experience on a daily basis is flawed relationships, sometimes good, sometimes we hurt each other. I think it's hard for us to understand this love that God has for us, which, as you said, is unconditional. And there's nothing we can do to earn it. We can't lose it. We can't get rid of him. There's nothing we can do, which I find extremely comforting. No mistake we could make that would ever force him to say like, "Okay, forget it. I've reached my limit with you. He's just not going to. I mean, he wants us to walk in relationship with him and make good choices and be in fellowship with him. But he's not going to stop loving us when we get that wrong.
4: You, on the one hand, every Sunday are dealing with hard news, with terrible things going on around the world. And yet you do it in a context where you are so deeply committed as a Christian Your general view of the world is so positive, almost no matter what negative thing you're reporting that particular morning.
2: Yeah, and there's so much pain in the world. There was all through biblical times. We see people suffer enormous losses. We talked about Job. I mean, there was infertility and heartbreak and widowhood and financial ruin. I mean, none of the suffering is new to God. And the thing about Christ walking the earth with us is that we're told, like, he suffered in every way as we do, he gets it, he knows what it's like to be tempted, to have your heart broken. He knows all of those devastating losses. Think about when he wept at the loss of his friend, Lazarus, he was very human in that respect. So listen, as I cover these things, my heart does break for these people, especially innocent people who are drawn into tragedies. And I put them right on my prayer list because I don't know how people manage the heartbreaking, devastating news, the division, the really hurtful things without some form of faith in their life. For me, that's the redeeming quality to the whole thing that makes it all work. Otherwise, I think you're walking into just a wall full of negative, devastating news every day. And if you don't have some hope beyond that, beyond this world, it would be tough to do.
4: In that context, do you find that your faith enables you to avoid getting depressed by the very things you're covering?
2: Most of the time. Yeah. I think COVID was really, really hard because that was one where every day you weren't just covering the story. We all were the story. Every single one of us worried about people that we loved. We worried for ourselves, for our children, for our livelihoods, for our economies, for lives just being lost all around the world by the millions. I mean, I think that was a really tough one. And it was a good reset for me because it reminded me that every morning for me, I got to start in prayer and in Bible study. I like journaling as well. It helps me to look and see what I'm learning, hopefully, and what God's promises are and writing them down. So I think COVID was a real test for all of us. It really stretched us. We felt isolated. We felt anxious and fearful. And it really, it was a good reset for me to remember this world is not all there is and that God is very aware of all of the suffering.
4: You've just now brought out the love stories of the Bible speak biblical lessons on romance, friendship, and faith. Have you begun thinking about another book? Hmm.
2: I haven't, but I actually have sketched out a fiction book that I feel like is divinely inspired. The whole story kind of came to me in a rush and I wrote it down and got it out. And I thought, I don't know if I'm any good at fiction. I mean, you're one of these writers that's good at everything. I think it's a totally different skill set, but I'm really anxious to see if I could try and do it justice. So I'm going to work on that.
4: You are a great storyteller, and I'm absolutely confident that whatever you decide to do, whether it's writing poetry or haiku or novels or another nonfiction book, that you'll just do it well. You're one of those people who has a remarkable level of universal competence.
2: Thank you. And I do enjoy a haiku. I think they're a fun challenge.
4: See, there you go. (laughs) Somehow intuitively, I knew I was going to touch on it. Shannon, I want to thank you for joining me again. And your new book really reminds us that no matter where we find ourselves, God's unwavering love will sustain and guide us. The insights you share into these biblical relationships will both uplift and encourage people. And I recommend everyone listening, get a copy of The Love Stories the Bible Speak, Biblical Lessons on Romance, Friendship, and Faith, which is on sale now. What you've done in really bringing the Bible into everyday life is a remarkable achievement it's a thrill to me that you would take the time to be with us here on Newsworld. World. Thank you very, very much.
2: Thank you. I'm just glad to be the vessel for this, Mr. Speer. Thank you for having me.
4: Thank you to my guest, Shannon Bream. You can get a link to buy her new book, The Love Stories of the Bible Speak, on our show page at newsworld.com. Newsworld World is produced by gamers 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
1: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip.
0: I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This